0: This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Stuart Richards, and I will be your host tonight. Joining me tonight is someone who has become a regular mainstay in this studio, and I'm not mad about it, the wonderful Will Cox. Hello, Will.
1: Hello. You're not mad about it.
0: I'm not mad about it. I mean, I am mad. No, I'm not (laughs) mad about it. No. Uh, Joining us tonight as well is the incredible Louise Ross, who is a curator at the Melbourne Cinematheque. Louise, hello.
2: Hi. It's so great to be here.
0: It's great to have you. On tonight's show, it's all a bit creepy. First, we interview the team behind new Melbourne-made horror film Apparitions, Perry Cummings and Paul Anthony Nelson. I think I've heard his name before on this show. Uh, We continue our horror evening with a look at the darker side of college campuses. With Mariama Diallo's Master, starring Regina Hall, who uh, also did a good job at hosting the Oscars today. Finally, we journey to 1970s Texas, behind the scenes of a dirty flick in Ty West's X. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're on Facebook at, at Primal Screen Show, on Instagram at Primal underscore screen underscore show and on Twitter at Primal underscore screen.
1: Right, well, so the first to start with, we're going to talk to Paul Anthony Nelson and Perry Cummings to discuss their new film, Apparitions.
3: Hey, it's Lil. I'm scared Al. I'm not sure what's happening. I thought everything would be all right. A young family died up there 20 years ago. The place was deserted. There was no trace of a weapon, a killer, not even another presence. Just Lily. You're right, I shouldn't have tried to do this on my own. The first thing you need to know about Lily is people vanish around her. What if she just snapped?
1: When she was a girl, Lily Stone was the only survivor of a tragedy that saw her family killed. Now, uh, 20-something Lily receives the keys to her family home in the countryside and she returns to the scene of the crime. But something isn't right in the house and has never been. Many more people have entered the house and never left. Does Lily harbour a dark secret? Uh, We have Paul and Perry, co-directors, co-writers, one co-lead and co- editors uh, PR, uh, pretty much everything, co-everything here. Hello, thank you for coming back to the show, Paul, and welcome, Perry.
3: Hello, you forgot to say
4: caterer.
1: Oh, I did. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't aware who, was, who did the catering. Now look. <laughs> hello, the- hello, I-
4: thanks <laughs> for having us. It's nice to be back on, weirdly, on the other side of the hot seat. On I- the other side.
1: The uh, Paul, mm-hmm. for those not familiar, has hosted the show for years. Uh, how many years, Paul?
4: Ah, uh, three. Better part of three years. Three. So, twenty nineteen to twenty
1: twenty one. Yeah, and um, and retired at the end of last year. Just mm, hung up the boots. Three and out. To spend you know. more time with your films. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> on on that on the division of labour, I have absolutely no idea where it falls. So I've got a few questions, but uh, feel free to jump in on each other's answers because uh, who knows what uh, you've all done a bit of everything. So, apparitions is a real love letter to genre cinema with hints towards The Hills Have Eyes, Nightmare on Elm Street, endless slasher films, uh, name drops for Carpenter, Cronenberg, Romero, uh, which is all in one in one frame, I believe. Uh, do They're you a good agree- law firm. You should hire. Do you agree with the assessment that this is a love letter to, to schlocky horror?
4: It's, yeah, it, we we come from the thing that's, um, genre has always been very important to us and the thing that, um, we were talking to someone about this the other day, about our backgrounds, which is I come from this very kind of genre-based film buff background, and as listeners to the show might know, and Perry comes from a, come
3: from a more physical theatre, you know, art house background, trained in Shakespeare and um, ancient Greek theatre.
4: So, and as well as, yeah, physical theatre, like um, um, uh, Peter Bausch and so forth. So we we kind of – we call ourselves – we're at the point where art house meets grind house, and and that's where we kind of dwell.
1: Okay, so you've got the – You've got the, the the cinema geek side of things, and you've got the the theatrical tradition side of things. Yes, yes, the, uh,
3: the, the, the theater geek side of things. Yeah, theater, theater geek.
4: Like Basically, theater she's geek. excellent at directing. She's much better at directing actors than I am. That's that's what it really boils down to. Right. And he's
3: really good at speaking um, tech talk. I go, can you point that thing over there in that vague direction?
1: It's called a the camera. It's called a camera. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I jumped in on your joke there, Paul. you were, you were raring <laughs> to go with that one. So tell me about the process of making a film like this Because look, I'm going to assume you both have jobs You both have lives to leave And I imagine you
4: had lockdowns to adhere to Is that
1: right? How does this work?
4: Well, we shot it in 2019 So we shot it pre We shot it in the before times um, Between March and May 2019 And then there was the rest of 2019 Was cutting it in 2020 We thought, oh yeah, we'll release it Get it out to festivals and have all that happen and as we all know, that did not happen. Um, so we spent uh, the better part of two years kind of getting distribution and uh, trying to trying to get it out there. And for the pandemic to die down, a lot of it was the, you know, proverbial waiting game, um, just waiting for things to subside. Um, distributors and sales agents didn't quite know what to do, uh, what, what you know, the uh, exhibition landscape was going to look like. Mm. And we managed to get a sales agent uh, at the end of, was it the end of 2020? Was wasn't it? Yeah. And then throughout 2021, they um they got us a deal, a home entertainment deal in the US and UK with four digital media and and so it was nice to kind of know it would be released you know um elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But yeah, these screenings are all part of trying to attach it. Australian home entertainment distributor, and um, yes,
3: but we've all the struggle also,
4: continues.
3: We've also discovered, you know, this being our second film, that a long time spent writing, um, a fair amount of time spent in pre-production, as short as amount of, as possible spent on um, shooting the film, and then um, it's post-production and distribution that takes the longest amount of time, anyway. Mm.
1: And you did manage to get it all out, all the actual physical side of getting out there and shooting the film. That was all long before any any lockdowns.
3: Yeah, Yeah. 24 days.
1: I imagine Um, that the the pandemic's had quite an impact on the the way that, um, you know, the the life of the film uh, and what you might have intended. But it does seem like the sort of film... I mean, it makes me uh, think of the sort of doom-laden, sort of obscure 80s horror films you'd find in a a dank video shop, RIP, uh, back (laughs) in the day. So, you know, you'd think it'd be perfect for streaming, but, but you had an eye on a cinema release...
4: Well, not this, I mean, we were kind of, we always thought it would play well in, like, we, we had some um, little test screenings and, so on, and, yeah, it seemed to play well on that, yeah, you know, on the big screen and we'd made it in scope and everything. Um, we just wanted to give it every chance, really, to, to just have, and we knew it would not get a regular, a regular, you know, big screen release. We knew it would be either a one-week season in an indie cinema or, like we're doing, a series of event screenings, but... Um, particularly with the Monster Fest screening last year, that, uh, where we p- made our world premiere last December, that really um, emboldened us. It went so well that we thought, no, we, we should give this the chance to screen on the big screen a couple more times. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, but in the end, it is going to be a home, you know, it's going to be a film that most people um, will find it on home entertainment and hopefully on a decent streamer somewhere, fingers mm-hmm. crossed. Mm-hmm.
1: So Australian indie film, I feel, often leans towards horror. Why do you think that is?
4: Um, because the, uh, the funding bodies generally don't finance it. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they don't get behind genre at all. Uh, so it often has to happen in the indie space.
3: And horror is a really great way, if you do have something to say as a filmmaker, it's a really good, fun way to say it. You know, some of the best horror that's being made now is that great social conscience horror. So, um, and but it's not the only genre that we're interested in exploring. In fact, our next project is a whole range of
4: genres. A multi-genre anthology film all set around Christmas. Oh, okay. A Christmas film. Yeah, the <laughs> Twilight Zone of Christmas movies. Were. Oh, excellent.
1: Okay, good. Well, you know, it's a bit early in the year for that for us, but I assume yeah. you've got to go away and make the thing and it's going to take, exactly. you, take you two years. <laughs> so. You're working on a very low budget as uh, as we've established. I imagine a very, very low budget. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that affect the script? you co-wrote the film? How does that a script affect the script and do you think horror works better on little or no money?
4: um the I'll answer the second part of the question first, which is yes. Um, I've always thought that if in most cases a big budget is the en- the natural enemy of horror um, the more. Because big budgets tend to go towards things like giant effects and mm-hmm. overwhelming sets and things like that, and you start to become more taken aw- taken out of the primal terror of the thing by the artifice. Um, whereas lower budget horror tends to be more visceral, more immediate, more um, more tangible. Um, so, yeah, I, I've always thought that lower um, lower budgets serve horror better. Um, horror is best served by low budgets, but. It's, Ara is the first part of the question, writing the script. How did you feel that it well, affected us?
3: I think that with the script, um, when we first um, wrote the initial drafts of the script, we really just let our creativity um, reign and then we would look for creative choices on how we could best serve the story that we wanted to tell. Um, so with our practical effects and so forth, we were really... Um, blessed by our crew. We had the fantastic um, visual makeup, visual effects makeup artist, me Kate Russell, who is well known to horror fans. Um, and she's done a brilliant job on um, the effects. And we collaborated early with you know, our lighting designer, with our DOP, with um, our visual effects artists, so that seeing how we could make the most of that tiny budget and, and what we needed to spend that on. Um, and time, I think really giving yourself time to think of creative solutions if you're making a low-budget film is the best thing to do.
4: And when you say visual effects, like it's special effects makeup, I am kind of allergic to digital visual effects. I, I like as little as that of that as possible. So we've, um, other than grading and, you know, mm. I don't think we even really need to paint the odd thing out very mm. often. So uh, we we pride ourselves on the fact that the, um, you know, no I guess no spoilers. All
3: the blood splatter yep. was actually splattered. Yes.
4: <laughs> no spoilers, there's a bit of blood.
3: Yes, yes there's, <laughs> there's a, a bit, of blood, bit of blood. A
4: a bit bit there's of one blood. bit where blood spurts from a person and that's all, you know, that was all practicals done. And, in and
1: very part. effectively done, can I, just, can I just say. And can I say the lighting in particular is really something. It really, um, you know, you can really see production value on the screen when the, the, these night scenes come in with this
4: incredible mm-hmm. lighting. Thank you. Yeah, that's our amazing DOP, uh, Tim Huntley. Egan and, and our gaffer, Sarah, Sarah doing who have worked with us for years and years and years. Yeah, so That's, that's
3: um, another great thing is having, having a team that you love, that you continue to work with. And, and I guess that comes back to the theatre concept as well. Because so often when you work in theatre, you work with the same people over and over again and you create a creative language. And I think that's one of the things that we inspire to do.
1: And you come to learn what everybody's limitations and what we are and what they excel at.
3: Exactly,
1: mm-hmm. um, how, they,
3: how they're best deployed. And also
1: what situations. they're most excited to try as well. Horror is, I mean, particularly this is a kind of, you know, the slasher with a sort of haunted house kind of leanings. Um, horror has a lot of rules. I feel like a, a piece like this has a lot of rules that it has to adhere to as a genre exercise where you need to you hit all the certain beats. Perry, not coming from a horror sort of background, not having that, that um, inherent mm-hmm. sort of passion for horror, how do you, feel that that affects the writing of things how do you tell a story when you don't uh have the perhaps the instinct as to exactly how to hit those horror beats
3: well in my other life um (laughs) i I am a storyliner for um film and television so um i've spent years working in writers rooms particularly the neighbors writing room honing that exact craft story is something that i absolutely adore in my spare time i do courses in script assessing and, you know, how to delve deeper and understand the greater meaning of script. So mm. I was very lucky I trained in Neighbours and that's really honed my story skills.
1: Right. Very okay. few murders in Neighbours.
3: Uh, you'd be surprised. <laughs>
1: I haven't watched rules. it for a few years. <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs> the other thing is too that um, Pez's favourite horror film was Scream.
0: Mm-hmm. And
4: well, so, yeah. so which schools are one in the rules. Uh, one might say, and she's a devotee of the entire Scream series. And also, if you're, I mean, we're partners in life as well as uh, work and and crime. And if you live with me for 14 years, you're going to watch a ton of horror movies. My knowledge
3: of horror movies has been greatly increased. (laughs) Right,
1: right. Okay. Well, Scream. I mean, that's a that's a film entirely written around the rules and uh, and playing, jumping in and out of those margins. Uh, um, Stick around and listen because later on when we're talking about X, which I don't know, have you two seen yet?
4: No, but I'm dying to. Right.
1: Well. Okay. Well, look. As far as uh, playing with the rules of the conventions of horror films, it's it's yeah, it's a there's a lot to talk about there. So make Mm -hmm. sure you're listening in. Um. Well, there's one more question actually I wanted to ask you, Paul, because for three years you were on this show Mm -hmm. uh, hosting this program every Monday, watching two or three films a week uh, to discuss on this. Do you think a regular appointment with other people's films in a kind of critical way has impacted the way that you approach this?
4: Yeah, yes and no. I mean, I've sort of always kind of uh, written, you know, reviews on sites like Letterboxd and, before they would, write reviews on Twitter and things like that. And I guess, but doing it in such a concentrated situation, like like this show, um, yeah, I think it does get you thinking more about. And it's funny because I think I just started on Primal Screen when we we're shooting this, so it's it's actually kind of a bit of a retroactive kind of impact. Um, and it's it it does get you thinking about. It does get you second guessing yourself a lot. I tell you that. Uh, it's, uh, but it does give you that sort of um, analytical kind of eye to what you're doing and how it fits. And, I'm, I mean, as a kind of a student of film history, I, I've always, you know, wanted, you know, being conscious of where our work sits within the greater history of things. And, and that's why with this film we did try to subvert those tropes, you know, and kind of, you know, lean one way and, you know, zig one way and zag in the other. Um and 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 sort of create expectations by homaging certain films and then pull them in another direction, but hopefully in an organic, entertaining way. But yeah, if that answers your question. <laughs> I can
1: I can imagine you uh watching uh one film one week and saying, Well, my film's not as good as that.
4: And then <laughs> the next
1: week going, Well, my film's a lot better than that. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, Paul and Perry, thank you so much for joining us. Where is apparitions showing showing at nova
4: is that right it is so it has one more screening and that is tomorrow night tuesday uh tuesday march 29th at eight forty p.m so it's uh it's right in uh, it's uh in the dark of night which is perfect the for witching hour, hour, as i believe eight forty 40 p.m I hopefully is you'll
3: be walking home after the movie
4: and looking <laughs> over your shoulder
1: <laughs> and and will you be doing a q a after that one
4: no, no, we're doing a quick intro, but no, we had a Q&A uh, yesterday screening and, and that went incredibly well. So, yeah, hoping to send it out of Melbourne with a bang and, and hurtling uh, towards the uh, wonderful world of streaming and maybe some other states we don't know yet. Great. Well, that's Apparitions
1: tomorrow, 8.40pm at Nova and and then on streaming forever. <laughs> There's no escaping it. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul and Perry. You're listening you. to Primal Screen on 3 R.
4: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au
2: to find out how.
0: Before we dive into our next film, though, first, a little award show was held today and it's caused quite a bit of controversy. There are a lot of hot takes happening at the moment about the altercations between Will Smith and Chris Rock, but you know, as film nerds, uh, a lot of other wonderful things happened during the show, and I'm interested in what your other takeaways were. Eloise, what were some of your highlights?
2: Uh, well, I was at work all day and sort of saw that there was a lot of chaos online and amongst the film fans who I work with and that, you know, lots was being said. Um, so I rushed home and watched sort of the main clips. I mean, I have to say that my, um, the the dearest thing that happened tonight was obviously Lady Gaga and Liza Minnelli giving Best Picture and coming on stage in their sequins and their various tuxes, um, looking glamorous and kind of sharing old cinema, old musical love. That was really made my heart sort of burst that moment. And I thought you know, it's going to, I guess, you know, the other moments of the evening will stick in people's memories, but that one is really special.
0: Yeah, I, I um, also love that Jane Campion won for Best Director, um, and I think it's quite um, momentous that, Uh, She won for Best Director when the film didn't win a single other Oscar um, for that uh, film. And I'm not sure if that's happened before.
2: I saw that that had last happened with The Graduate. Yeah. Is that um, when The Graduate? And that was 1967, so that's quite some time.
0: Yeah. Um, Will, what were your favourite moments?
1: I haven't watched a thing, Stewie. I no, I have. <laughs> I've watched one viral clip on the internet which um I you can probably guess what that clip was. But um yes. <laughs> I I don't know, I'm never watched, I've never won for award ceremonies, to be honest. I don't really care what the Academy <laughs> think is the better film yeah. out of the power of the dog or um don't look up. You know. Yeah. Which one's better? I don't know. That doesn't make that the question doesn't make much sense to me.
0: Well, neither one best picture. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> another absolutely. film was so, better. Both of them, um, I
4: liked
1: both of those uh, controversially. Yeah.
0: Um, I also thought the hosts did a really good job, and that's a tricky thing to do hosting the Oscars. Amy Schumer came out after the altercation. Um, saying she was stuck in her dressing gown, um, a dressing room and asking if she had missed anything, um, <laughs> which I thought was good. Um, our next film is The Master. Last name, first name? more Jasmine. Guys, she got the room. I've been having
2: nightmares. You look like you've seen a ghost. Why is this administration spending more energy undermining my tenure than on ferreting out who's been terrorising the student body? You can't get away from it, Jasmine.
0: It'll follow you. It's everywhere. In Mariama Diallo's psychological horror Master, gail bishop played by regina hall becomes the first black master of ancaster university an elite institution in a new england college town the white dominated student cohort believes that the university is haunted by the ghost of margaret millis who was accused of witchcraft and hanged on the campus grounds jasmine moore played by zoe renee a young black freshman Uh, is assigned to room 302 with her white roommate, Amelia, played by Talia Ryder. Their room was once occupied by the institution's first black student who died in that room under mysterious circumstances. Like many great genre films, such as Get Out, District 9 and Candyman, Master uses established genre tropes to explore the legacy of racism. Eloise, what did you make of Master?
2: I really liked it to start with. I thought in terms of a horror film, it started off really great. We get this whole realm of horror tropes in the first 10 minutes, like a door opening on its own, a door closing on its own, these shadows that seem to have a life of their own creepy portrait stuff um it was all really amazing and it also looked really beautiful like had this orange red tone with really kind of skilled lighting throughout the whole thing I guess narratively in terms of character and structure it was quite messy and undercooked and not that it should have been longer but I feel like other elements should have been uh, emphasised, you know, there were three sort of three lead characters that was balanced between um, Liv, played by Amber Grey, Gail, Regina Hall, you know, an Oscars kind of relevant star today, yes. <laughs> um, and Jasmine. But I thought that that was really not very well balanced um, overall and kind of disappointing. We didn't get a sense of who any of them were in terms of narrative but, you know, in the kind of like the trope and the rules of what horror should do. It
0: worked quite well. Mm.
1: Well, I well I felt it was quite effective that it didn't let plot become the main driver. I mean, I th- I feel like with horror, we all kind of know what the sort of the tropes and the beats are, and it just sort of it, it let let those take over. It didn't get in the right way of this sort of rich theme of unease and the uh, the main horror, the main driver of the thing is is um, the terror of the, the the black students and staff feel just the creeping. Uh, you know terror pushed deep down uh at at their treatment at uh, at the hands of of white uh, of their white colleagues and white cohort and I think that that came across brilliantly i think that that, that really felt i really felt that you know did you mm-hmm. feel the same Stewie? did, did that
0: horror get yeah i i mean i I'm, I agree with Eloise where it's so beautiful the the aesthetics um of the film. Uh, coupled with the incredible soundscape um, just creates this really uneasy mood. I mean, I think back to my early days at Melbourne Uni and you're staying up late in the library and there are so many like creepy, quiet hallways and corners of about like, you know, empty buildings that you find yourself in late at night on college campuses or university campuses. And I think it captures that creepiness really well. And... When I think back to the film and preparing for tonight, I I really love how it portrays and engages with those themes of racism where the master's house is quite literally rotted um, and, and what that means. Um, that being said, while watching it, I was so frustrated by how messy the narrative was where there's so many brilliant and incredible ingredients of this film mm. but just that story just, it needed someone else, I think, in the script editing process to be like, all right, this needs another draft.
1: It really felt like I I sort of ended up piecing bits of the story together after the fact. Mm. Did you feel the same?
0: I mean, I I did, and I think that feeling of, like, bereftness in a way maybe is deliberate. Like maybe we are meant to be uncomfortable and sort of not happy with how things are finalised or concluded. Eloise?
2: Yeah, I feel like, I mean, there were sort of these chapter intertitles where, which sort of the the sense of them was revealed sort of slowly after about the second or third intertitle. You understood what was happening here. But it's true we were being presented with, I guess, rather than a coherent story or like a tight narrative, like a series of vignettes, at this university and of these um, women's experiences. Um, It's still, I mean, I really liked that. And I feel like in sort of slowing things down, it strengthened the pace and it kind of brought um, thematic and narrative beats together. Uh, So I really liked that element of it. And I felt like the, you know, the way it sort of slowed down at those points was really strong.
0: I thought the um the way it explored the power imbalances of the staff members was really fascinating and so much better than the chair with Sandra O. Oh, and that's what I kept from coming to and how more successful this film is. Me like the- too.
2: I really didn't enjoy the chair. And I was thinking, <laughs> and I was thinking about you, Stewie, because I know you work um in a university as well, that you know, it was very kind of funny to see the way yeah. that teachers and students speak in this show?
0: I mean, the the tenure meeting, like it's a cult, like mm. this backlighting and <laughs> them kind of sitting around in a circle and talking in code. It's, yeah. Well, it
2: look, yeah, the, the senior staff, sorry, look like they're, like, getting ready to eat the underlings. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, there's Which, that great it, it, party scene where one of the um, one of the well, the master of the of the title is looking around at her white colleagues and seeing them all as these kind of uh, remnants from another century. You know, these kind yeah. of monsters almost. I that was the, that was probably my favourite sort of <laughs> real icky horror bit in the film.
2: There was with, I think, all of the characters a really interesting and quite accomplished sense of framing where they were all kind of isolated from their peers or their friends or what have you and that that was really well done. In mm. I think in what you were saying, well, you know, creating this sense of just like constant, unease and tension Mm. based on their experience at this institution
1: well that's the undergrad experience as well though isn't it (laughs) i mean you've both got academic experience you'll know that paranoia nightmares isolation being constantly behind the ball is just sort of part of the the university experience
0: I love with, um, with the, the undergraduate student um, who's uh, Jasmine where she almost has this like reverse imposter syndrome which was really refreshing because a big uh, part of her character arc is where she fails an essay. And she kind of challenges the system and says, no, like this was a decent essay. I shouldn't have failed. And I found it really refreshing that that was flipped, I think, Um, and how she kind of had that confidence to navigate that system. Um, But it did become quite silly, I thought, towards the end. Like there was the nightmare about the the campus tour and they end up in her room and I, I thought that was really silly. Um, there
1: were a few plot expediences that really wound me up that, I mean, I'm not quite sure what they were doing there, they seemed unnecessary. I mean, for instance, uh, when um, the undergraduate student goes to the filing cabinet in the library where they keep the personal diary of, of a student who killed herself on <laughs> campus 50 years prior, I don't know that that's a university policy that, to keep that kind of thing, but it, that was that
2: was absurd, I think, that was too far.
0: Um, and the sorry elevates you go I was
2: just perhaps that was a dream will i don't know like there was lots of uh very um unclear kind of fluidity between dream and reality or like her nightmares her fears and reality so i didn't actually think that but you know it's just a, if we think it was that far fetched maybe <laughs> it was you on?
0: <laughs> but also the um because so the gail character is i mean she's the the master of the campus which I think the Australian equivalent would be like the Dean of Programs or the student kind of welfare um, Dean or, or what have you and she had a very personal connection with all of the individual students and I, I know I, that also didn't really ring true to me um, <laughs> because like they're just so far um separated from sort of the everyday experiences I really
2: liked her character and I think part of what disappointed me is that she sort of uh, she was the most interesting of the three of them and she gets this great kind of finale that seems really rushed and really far-fetched kind of within the context of everything and I would have loved to have seen that come in earlier and maybe take on kind of the second and third act rather than kind of just I mean, it's not even really the third act, it's just kind of this coda, this ending Mm. that we get with her um, and that she didn't really get a chance to shine and Regina Hall is fantastic, I think.
0: She's so good in this film and I think that uh, speaks to what we were saying earlier where it felt really um, rushed or like it needed a little bit more time to let all of those pieces settle because there's a revelation about one of the other characters Mm. at the end and that just kind of comes out of nowhere, and and the implications of that with this story and how that would play out on campus. I don't know. That just also needed to be dealt with.
1: Well, we we really end before we get to any of those implications, and there's an indication that we might not. That, that you know, that might not play out. That, mm. That's not that's not as important as uh, as the personal story, which I'm not sure is true.
4: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
1: We have a subscriber giveaway. Uh, We have two double passes to a screening of Everything, Everywhere, All at Once a mind-bending sci-fi action comedy that hops around multidimensional universes with Michelle Yeoh as a reluctant saviour. With a winning ensemble cast, explosive martial arts combat and irreverent pop humour, everything, everywhere, all at once is an epic and emotional crowd-pleaser, is what is written in front of me. But it does actually look genuinely quite good. Um, I've been looking forward to this one. So we have a screening on Tuesday, April 12th at Cinema Nova uh, at 6.15. We have two double passes um, to give away. Uh,
4: how do people go about doing that one? They will go to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au, go to the subscriber section, and it's all there.
1: Exactly. That, very good. Thank you. Very good. Okay. Go to the website. But now we're going back to reviewing. We're discussing some sex and violence.
3: I have seen you sneaking a few long peeks at Jackson over here. No, I... I wasn't looking. You don't mind none.
0: She's right.
3: I don't mind. No offense. Everybody likes sex. It's a guess. we're just not afraid to admit it. Queer, straight, black, white. (laughs) It's all disco. You know why? Because one day, we're gonna be too old to fuck. And life's too short, if you ask me.
1: Roger that.
3: The fact of the truth of the matter is, We turn folks on, and that scares them. And they can't look away neither. That's right. We're like a foxy car wreck. Mm
1: Hmm. Like a foxy car wreck. This is X. Uh, The late 70s, a hopeful band of filmmakers set out in a van marked Ploughing Service to a remote farm to shoot a no-budget pornographic film. The three stars of the film, Mia Goth, Kid Cootie and Brittany Brittany Snow, are joined by the producer, Wayne Gilroy, the earnest writer-director, Owen Campbell, and his prudish girlfriend, Jenna Ortega. As they try to get away with keeping the filming secret from the creepy old couple who own the farm, sex begins to beget violence. Uh, Stewie, I know you were excited about this one.
0: I was. um, I... The, I mean, the, the promotional material for this looks incredible. Um, I loved Ty West's um, earlier film, You're Next, um, and one thing that he's quite good at, particularly that film as well, is balancing, you know, that horror film uh, for the fans, you know, hitting all of those beats, all of those tropes, while also being a bit silly in some parts and being funny, And I think he delivers that again with this. I think it's his strongest film um, yet. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely for slasher fans, um, particularly of the early cycle of, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, all of those. Um, And I think he's quite great in how he deals with those homages. It's not just, oh, here's a nod to... um, uh, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, let's move on. He really kind of plays with them and updates them and um and the more you're aware of this genre, I think the more fun you'd get out of it. You've you've
1: got to be silly and playful with a, a film like this. I you can't I don't think you could now put yeah. a put a serious slasher film out without it just being quite absurd. Because we're yeah. 25 years after Scream, as we were discussing yeah. um with Paul and Perry earlier. Um, you have to sort of play with the rules and um, I think this does that really beautifully, like playfully juxtaposing sex and violence and the promise of both and the ramifications of both. Well, sex has always been a huge part of the, the as you say, the first cycle of mm. slasher films. But I can't think of a film that discusses it quite so frankly in this genre, do you think?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think historically with the slasher film, there was that realm of punishment where... Yeah. Um, you know the teenagers you know they do drugs they have sex and then the killer is motivated by a past wrong to punish them Um, and and that is you know that is evident here I mean obviously I won't give away who the killer is or um, what drives them but that is definitely evident here Um, you, you know the the Explicitness of what the filmmaking crew are doing Does drive the the killer or the killers Um, But um, it's not in a way that I think is judgmental Or Mm. um, exploitative with the cast Um, And I did appreciate I mean, maybe not appreciate is the word But, you know, we get nudity From both sort of ends of the gender spectrum Um, Kid Cootie uh, who plays uh, Jackson, I believe, um, you know, is we see a full frontal shot there. So it's not really, um, you, you know, this exploitative sort of trope that we get of young women in these films. It, I mean, it's about,
1: it's as much about um, Stephanie's attitudes to sex and violence as it is a, a, a representation of those. You know, it's a, it's a real commentary on them. It's mm. a commentary on the '70s attitudes, which are, many of which are still with us, um, yeah. equating sex with violence, saying that you know sort of moral uh, um, aspersions against against sex, while violence is quietly valorized. Um, mm. Several characters in the film are war veterans from World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, and that's that's spoken quite you know it's a very it's a point of pride for these men that they killed for their country. Yeah. Um, whereas sex is uh, for you know. Mm. Roughly half the cast is um, something that that uh, should be punished, or people should be ashamed of, for two or yeah. three of the characters.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, one thing that um, I think is interesting is that we um, were just talking about Master earlier, um, and we were saying it how the aesthetics and the soundscape really um, evoked that the mood of, of that film, and we do see that as well here. I mean it's it's weird to say that a slasher film is beautiful but there are some moments in this film that are incredible particularly the use of or the scene where Don't Fear the Reaper plays with the the van and the headlights and some dancing happens um it's incredible it, but yeah. one thing that I was kind of let down by with this film was the soundscape and the the soundtrack I didn't Love the the soundtrack. I, I didn't remember it walking out mm. and preparing for tonight. I listened back to the soundtrack on Spotify, and I don't, it, it didn't jump out at me. Or I didn't like remember key moments, um, and apart from that one scene, um, and so I, I kind of wanted more from the soundtrack. I Do you think. mean
1: at a score kind of level, or, or yeah, kind I mean of both mo- my, uh, needle drop kind of moments where pop songs.
0: Kick well, in. both. I, I I think the score. I mean, thinking back to, like, Halloween and Friday the 13th, how creepy their scores are, like the mm. kind oh, of yeah. sound. There was none of that I didn't get. And, I mean, considering it's a 70s film where they're making porn, like, where are the bangers? Give me some I just, slap bass. Yeah. It I just could have been a little bit more leaning into that. I think that was the only thing that I think... Let me down with this film. Okay,
1: well, here's something that let me down, and I've <laughs> <laughs> this is something that I've I've mentioned before on on this show, but it, it does fail at the one special effect that no film can uh, seem to achieve, which is um, depicting old people. Um, there's the the makeup effects on 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 young people to made to look old is insanely bad. I don't know how else to describe it.
0: Okay. So I would um, try not to give anything away. No. But there is something about the casting yes, I, uh, with this film. Yes, and I know, but you
1: can see that immediately. when I didn't. I think when two I, old people come on <laughs> and they are not old people, they are people dressed up as old people,
0: and one you of can them,
1: see it a mile away
0: and no, immediately. So the, one I of think, them was, just quickly, one of them was an older actor made to maybe be a bit two decades older than what he was, um, and another isn't, and I didn't pick it. So I there was uh, there's a casting choice with this film, which I think is fantastic. Mm. And, I mean, you're saying that you picked it immediately. Oh, no, I, I didn't
1: pick who it was, but I picked that yeah. there was something going on there in such okay. a way that I think if you can't effectively make a young person look, old, that thematic link just falls down Every time, you know, as somebody appears mm. on the screen, and it just screams themes, you know, and, and it just yeah. doesn't, it doesn't work for me. I, I don't know. I just kept thinking, you know, I, I can't quite tell who that's supposed to be uh, made mm. up under there. But why aren't we just, why don't we just hire someone over seventy?
0: <laughs> I mean, it, it worked for me because when I realized when I looked at the IMDb list afterwards, yeah. my mind was blown. Um, and in completely unrelated uh, terms, I thought Mia Gough was incredible in this film. Oh,
1: yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah.
0: She's incredible. Well, I thought um, all the
1: cast were great.
0: But, I mean, Britney Snow, Kid Cootie, like they, what, a good slasher film makes you feel something for the ensemble yeah. cast. Yeah. Where they're all individual with all different motivations. And that does this really, really well. Yeah. The characterization is incredible in this film. I loved it.
1: It is. And I I love the way that it brings sex into it, uh, it, it, very frankly. I think the 70s slasher and the 70s porn are quite close spiritually, you know, because they're both sort of exploiting base instincts and reaching for sort of dubious artistic expression.
0: Yeah. I mean, I know we're running out of time, but it uh, took me back to my undergraduate screen studies days where there's a really great essay on body genres by Linda Williams, where she says that melodramas, porn, and horror films evoke similar like body or physical reactions from the viewer. And these genres are really closely aligned in terms of their beats and how we respond to them. And I don't know, it made me think of that, where porn and horror, I think there's a link there.
1: Absolutely. And the way that it makes it it finds something new, I think, that hadn't really been discussed before as far mm. as something that icks us out. Um, yeah. Even today, which is a uh, sexual attention from from old people or sex and old people, um, yeah. and it really makes you interrogate that what what that is and why. Uh, mm. it, it absolutely terrifies me the Goth's, Goth's character, um, yeah. in a very convincing way. I think it's yeah. very effective.
0: Yeah, she was yeah she was great in this film. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R.